Please turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Micah, chapter 7, Micah, chapter 7. As I said last evening, it is so good to be back in Valamina, back in Ulster, back in the pulpit. Uh, I don't get the opportunities that I used to have to preach the Word of God, so it's always refreshing to me, invigorating, challenging uh, to get back in the saddle and to bring the Lord's Word. Always a joy to come here and to open up the book. Micah chapter 7, we'll begin reading in verse 1. Read the first nine verses and then jump over to verse 18 to the end of the chapter. Micah chapter 7, beginning the reading of God's word in verse 1. Let's hear his holy word. Woe is me, for I am as when they have gathered the summer fruits, as the grape gleanings of the vintage. There is no cluster to eat. My soul desired the first ripe fruit. The good man is perished out of the earth, and there is none upright among them. They all lie in wait for blood. They hunt every man his brother with a net, that they may do evil with both hands earnestly. The prince asketh, and the judge asketh for reward. And the great man, he uttereth his mischievous desire, So they wrap it up. The best of them is as a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of thy watchman and thy visitation cometh. Now shall be their perplexity. Trust ye not in a friend. Put ye not confidence in a guide. Keep the doors of thy mouth from her that lieth in thy bosom. For the son dishonoreth the father. The daughter riseth up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Therefore, I will look upon unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord, because I have sinned against him, until he plead my cause and execute judgment for me. He will bring me forth to the light, and I shall behold his righteousness. Verse 18, Who is a God like unto thee, that pardoneth iniquity, And passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob And the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. And God will bless the public reading of his word for his name's sake. Would you bow your head and your heart with me for a moment? Let's all seek God's face together. Let's all pray. Eternal God and loving Father in heaven, ere we... Open our mouths to preach thy word and open our ears to hear it. We are aware that without thee we can do nothing that will profit. We may preach a sermon, but it won't be a message in season for this gathering. Thy people may hear a sermon. They may understand the points and get the application but it won't reach down into their soul if the Holy Ghost is not present in that preaching. So in the name of Jesus Christ, give us the Holy Spirit, we pray, in abundance. It's not too hard for thee. O God, do what thou hast promised to do, that if we call upon thee, 
thou would answer us and show us great and mighty things that we know not. In our Savior's name we ask it all. Amen and amen. My text this morning is found in verse 8. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. From this verse, I want to preach this morning about our struggle with our falls and failures. Our struggle with our falls and failures. The prophet Micah was a contemporary with Isaiah and like that more well-known prophet. His ministry was primarily focused on the southern kingdom of Judah. Like Isaiah, Micah was called to sound the trumpet and show God's people their transgressions, to expose sin. Both men had been raised up by God to bring light to the guilt of the people for their idolatry, for their rebellion, and their failure to heed his oft-repeated warnings. The opening verses of the chapter before us give us a little glimpse into how bad things were in the land of Judah. In verse 1, Micah, using poetic language, says he looked for spiritual fruit, which should have been expected in light of all the the goodness that the Lord had shown them, but there was none. In verse 2, he laments that there's an abysmal lack of good and godly men, and because of that, evil men were flourishing in the land. Any semblance of morality and an orderly society had suffered an awful breakdown. In verse 3, you discover that there has also been a breakdown in the leadership in the land. Those who should uphold the law, the princes and the judges, were easily bribed. As Isaiah put it in his prophecy in chapter 59, judgment is turned away backward and justice standeth afar off, for truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. In verse 4, we find that what we will call the best of them, the best of them were like thorns, harmful, painful, injurious to others, anything but a benefit and a blessing. If that is what could be said about the best of them, what did it say about the rest of them? Micah then goes on to show how there had been a, a breakdown in human relationships, especially in the home, amongst the families. He indicates in verse 5 that you couldn't trust your neighbor or even your own spouse. It was a time when, verse 6, a man's enemies are the men of his own house. And to put it succinctly, things were bad in the land. Sin was rampant. It looked like all was lost. It looked like it was over. There was no hope. It seemed that all they could ever expect at this point in time from the hand of God was judgment. It was destruction. But in verse 7, Micah says, therefore. I like that. Therefore. Because sin had come in like a flood with, it was unstoppable, it seemed, He says that I will look unto the Lord. It's bad. Times are bad. Society is falling apart. The devil is having a heyday. Therefore, I will look unto the Lord because I cannot look to men. I will look unto the only one who has the answer for this sin that is running rampant in my land. It's after he does this that he utters the words of our text, 
Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy, for when I fall, I shall arise. And when I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. Notice carefully how Micah has now brought this whole affair down to a very personal level. He's been talking about the sin that is flagrant in the land, but now he's, he doesn't say when the people fall, when they shall arise, but when I fall, I shall arise. The very next verse shows what he means by his fall. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Here's the prophet making himself one with the people, pleading as if the sin was his own. That's exactly what Daniel did when he sought the Lord for the sins of his people. Daniel prayed, we have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled. And so on it goes in chapter 9. He's identifying with the people. I would submit to you that there's much that you and I can glean about how Micah dealt with his, I put that in quote, his sin in showing us how to deal with our sin, with our falls into sin, with our failures. And not only our falls into sin and our failures, but the consequences which arise because of our falls and our failures. Consequences described at the end of our text, when I sit in darkness, and the opening words of verse 9, I will bear the indignation of the Lord. The consequences of our falls into sin. He tells us how to deal with that. It is a struggle that every Christian in this house of God this morning has experienced. If you are his if you've been born again by the spirit of god you've had this struggle with how do i deal with my falls into sin that's my subject notice in the first place please falls and failures are a common experience of all of god's people Micah says, when I fall, not if I fall. In saying this, please understand, I am not for a moment making light of sin in the lives of his people. I'm not just saying, well, it just happens and you just got to go on. Not for a moment am I saying that sin is something that God hates. He despises, he abominates, it's reprehensible to him, he condemns it, it is abhorrent to him, and you and I cannot begin to understand how abhorrent sin, our sins, are to God. We can't even begin to grasp what the angels and the saints gone to glory understand about the holiness of God much less can we grasp what God himself understands about his complete, utter, infinite separateness from sin. We do get an insight when we look to Calvary, when we look to the cross, that God would put our sin upon him because it had to be punished. His innocent, sinless son, had to become that sin offering to deal with that sin and satisfy his justice before he could show salvation to us. There's a hymn I heard many years ago by a Scottish men's choir, a cappella. Why was he there was the question throughout the whole hymn. Why was he there? Why was he there? By God and man forsaken to show to me was the answer, how dreadful sin must be. So I'm not, for a moment, making light of sin, excusing our sins and failures. But when I say that sinful falls 
and failures are a common experience of all of God's people, I'm only stating what is clearly revealed in Scripture. The Word of God reveals that the the strongest, you'll find amongst the strongest of God's people, the most eminent of his saints, not only a liability of sinning and falling and failing, but that they did fall, and it wasn't just one time in their life. It was repeated. Noah, he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He was a tremendous preacher. He preached to a congregation for a hundred years who had no interest in his sermons, who mocked him and who laughed him, yet he kept preaching, there's coming a day of judgment. Get into the ark, get into the ark, and they would not hear him. But Noah was found lying in his tent one day, passed out from drunkenness. Noah. He was saved, but he was stumbling drunk, as we would say. Abraham, the father of the faithful, he thought he had to tell a lie to protect his wife. His son Isaac did the same. Jacob was a a conniver, a twister, always had a scheme to get out of problems instead of trusting God. Even on, walking on with God, when uh, you, you thought maturity would have come to a point where he'll be okay, he'll, he'll handle this all right, but he says, when they find out that his son's not coming back from being held captive in Egypt, all these things are against me. And what about David? A number of weeks ago, I before turning out the light, I picked up a little booklet. It was a sermon by John Newton. And he's preaching from a text in Psalm 51. You know that's the Psalm of David where he is making his confession to God for his sin with Bathsheba. And the text he was taking, open my mouth, Lord, that I might show people thy ways. In other words, David was saying, because of this sin I have committed this fall, I can't open my mouth to praise you as I used to. His mouth was sealed. And Newton went on to make the remark that a man who had been so Highly favored, this man after God's own heart, who had been so wonderfully preserved, would, in a moment where he was not careful, he was not cautious, he was unguarded, would actually go from being tempted, seduced, to led captive by Satan. And he would stay in that state for a year before it took a direct message from Nathan the prophet and saying, Thou art the man. This was David. What about Solomon, the man who was given wisdom beyond all others? Led astray by women, his concubine, to the point where he actually built temples of worship for their gods. Solomon, building temples for false gods. Incredible, but is it? Is it? Samson, Delilah, women were his weakness. He was a child of God, but he fell. What about Christ's disciples? Sat under the master for three years, heard the best preacher in all the universe for all time. They forsook him and fled. Peter, you know the story. Peter, the man of astounding faith, really. He denied him thrice. John Mark. John Mark deserted Barnabas and Paul when the going got real tough. This is too much. I can't take this. He left them. That was a fall, you know. That was a big failure to abandon them because it was just getting tough. What about the Christians who came, who came to stand with Paul when he makes, he's making his way to Rome and they meet him outside the city and they're so happy to see him. Great time of fellowship. I'm sure it was so encouraging. To, he said he was encouraged by it all. But when it came time in his first appearance before Caesar, he said, no man stood with me. That was wrong. That was a fall. That was a failure. 
When you think about the seven churches, to get to a broader spectrum, when you think about the seven churches in Revelation, there was only one of them that was the church of Philadelphia that did not receive a strong rebuke from the Savior. Churches. Our larger catechism raises the question, number 149, is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? No man, no man is able either of himself or by any grace received in this life to perfectly keep the commandments of God, but doth daily break them in thought, word, and deed. Surely we understand that. That's why we, or at least should, daily and more than once in a day, but daily go to the Lord to confess our sins and seek forgiveness for our sins because we commit them daily. We understand that, don't we? It it, it creates this needless distance between us and the Lord. It gives us this guilty conscience, this heavy heart. All the damage that's done when we don't keep short accounts with God. And let me say that continues. If that continues, you're headed down the path of a backslider. We sin daily. And I would suggest to you, brothers and sisters, we don't know the half of those sins because they're done in ignorance. But what I'm stressing just now is how to deal with those falls and those failures that go well beyond those daily sins of word and thought and deed. There are sins that are greater than others. They are more heinous than others. Greater in their affront to God, greater in the damage, the damage that they do to ourselves and that they do to others and that they do to the work of God. It's one thing, you know, to allow a lustful thought to linger in your mind. It's another thing altogether to sit down and look at pornography. They're not on the same plane. It's one thing to get irritated, to feel anger rising up in your heart against someone, whoever that someone may be. It's something else altogether different to break out in a rage toward them with language and behavior that is so grieving to God, so unholy, so devil-like. All of us have to fight the sin of pride. It's always there. It was Spurgeon who said that pride is the last sin that dies in the hearts of God's people because it doesn't die until they do. It's always there in us. The thing is, it it, it blinds us and we don't see it. Pride blinds us to seeing that we're proud. We don't even know that we're proud. We don't even realize that we're acting prideful. We all have that struggle. But when the pride reaches such a state where God has to take severe measures to humble us because we have not obeyed the word of God and humbled ourselves under his mighty hand, it shows that we have failed And we have failed miserably in walking humbly with God. And that's one of the three things that the prophet says. He's shown the old man. Walk humbly with thy God. Christians, honest to goodness Christians who've been saved by grace, cleansed by the blood of Christ, who know the word of God, Christians have fallen into drugs. They have fallen into drink. I have been there for three years. Saved, I would have never said it, but there I was. 
living in it. And I was a child of God. Christians have fallen into sexual immorality. They have committed adultery. They have fallen into a lifestyle that denies, in essence, the very existence of God. Christians have done that. We could add to the list, but I think you get my point. Child of God, let me ask you, do you know what it is to fall into sin? Well, I'd never touch drink. Good. Don't ever touch it. Don't ever touch it. I speak from experience. Don't ever take that glass of wine. That's how it started with me. One thing leads to another. Don't ever go there. But don't think because, well, I, I would never do drugs. I would never do drink. What about your thought life? What about what you, what, what, what you watch on the Internet? What about that pride? What about that anger that seems to be just seething beneath and is just ready to explode? And you take it on, out on everyone around you. Your children are afraid of you because you're so angry. Your wife is scared to death of you. You fall like that? And the reality is that when Christian falls into sin, he will find himself sitting in darkness. Sitting in darkness speaks of affliction, of fear, of anxiety, of captivity, and even despair when you are sitting in darkness because of the fall into sin. Our sinful falls and failures will result in the darkness of shame, of guilt, of sorrow, of dread, of defeat, none of which we really want and none of which are helpful to our walk with God, to our work for the Lord, and to our worship. Oh, we may come and sit in the house of God and we may sing the hymns, but inside there's this, I have fallen and I'm sitting in darkness. Perhaps, perhaps there's someone here at the gallery down the main floor and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Don't you know that God came today to this preacher from America to confront you with it? This, this struggle, how do I deal with my falls into sin? How do I deal with my failures as a child of God? You see, that darkness, God will have us to know how bitter and how evil a thing it is to sin against him. How indignant he is at our sin. He will never cast us away. No matter how often we fall and fail. He will never ever cast us away. But he will chasten us. He will withdraw the sense of his presence. He will take away his gracious influences and we'll find ourselves sitting in darkness. This is the reality. All of God's people fall and they fail. Second thought. Satan's plans for our destruction will be defeated. Satan's plans for our destruction will be defeated. Micah speaks of his enemy. While there is no doubt a reference in context to, to Babylon and to Edom and the things he's dealing with, the real enemy that was behind it all was Satan. He was looking beyond that, really. In his hatred for Jesus Christ, Satan works incessantly for your destruction. He's the destroyer. His name is Apollyon. 
This warfare that we are seeing played out on the world stage right now, it's not about a war between, uh, you'll know where I'm from and what I mean when I say it, between Republicans and Democrats, or perhaps over here, between the liberals and the conservatives. Don't put your focus there because that's not what it's about. This is about a war that's been going on for millennia between God and Satan. Satan is behind this warfare upon God's cause, God's people. He wants utter destruction. From the moment that God stepped in the Garden of Eden and redeemed Adam and Eve and said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed, there's been a war that's being waged. It's not politics. It's the war between God and Satan. That's what we're dealing with. Never forget that. Always come back to that foundational truth when you think you're being tempted to get all caught up in all the side affairs and the side battles. This is the big battle. That's what it's about. We're seeing something on a scale that to me is breathtaking and how rapid it's transpiring is the attack of Satan upon the word of God. His attack upon the work of God and his attack upon the people of God. He is the destroyer. He strives to destroy anything that God upholds, including the lives of his people, including their testimony. And one of his primary methods of trying to destroy believers, and I, and I mean destroying their testimony... He can destroy their testimony. He, he knows he's done a good, bad number on their usefulness. He wants to destroy your happiness. He wants to destroy your peace of mind, the well-being of your soul. He wants to take away your joy. One of his primary methods is using his craft of temptation to sin. He wants us to fall. To our total and complete destruction. And he comes with the simplest of things. That seem innocuous. But he's after something else. He wants you to fall. And to fall hard. And you've been there. It began with Eve. That's what he was about. And it continues till today. Why? Why does he do it? In his blindness, in his absolute wicked blindness, he still thinks that he can triumph over God. Why in the world will there be a battle of Armageddon if he thinks it's a done deal? He's deluded. He's deluded. He wants God's name to be blasphemed through the falls and failures of his people. Look at what Micah says about the enemy as he looks upon his fall. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. In other words, the enemy is taunting him, laughing at him, mocking his profession to be a child of God. And the enemy is seen rejoicing over his apparent triumph over Micah. In other words, he sees the fall and he was delighted. Not only was he taunting God's servant, but he was striving to, to terrorize him. You folks know all about terrorists over here. The greatest terrorist that is roaming about the earth is the devil. He seeks to terrorize the people of God. Through their falls. That darkness that comes. Into the heart and mind of a believer. When he falls into sin. Is a place. That Satan looks. As you might call it. The terrorist playground. But he's not playing. He comes to terrorize. The fallen child of God. With the darkest thoughts. The most terrorizing fears. You're not a Christian. You're a phony, you are deceived. God 
has cast you away. He's done with you. It's over. No point in praying. You know, matter of fact, there's no point even going to church anymore. And that's what happened to me at 18 years of age. Grew up in church all my life. I said, no point going back anymore. I met a woman in a little small shop in the midst of my fall into sin. She was a faithful church member. I'd known her for years. Sweetest lady, tender heart. She met me in the store, came across her, and her face just lit up to see me. And in the conversation, she said, I'd just like to see you back in church again. I said to her, it's not for me. For you, it's okay, but it's not for me. Tears began to well up in her eyes. She said, you'll be back. I said, no, I won't. Why go back? The devil comes and terrorizes. He comes and says so often, you will never, ever have victory over that sin. Never. You can't beat it. But after looking to the Lord... Micah says with absolute confidence, when I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. It's, a, it, it's as if he's telling Satan, you're laughing at me now. You think you've conquered me, but I want you to know I am going to have the last laugh. And I'm going to one day put my heel upon your neck. Hmm. You see how he dealt with this struggle? Every attempt that Satan makes to destroy the child of God will ultimately be defeated. I want you to know that. I don't know where you are. I don't know where you are in your walk with God. I don't know where you are in this this whole issue. But I will tell you, every attempt that Satan has and makes to defeat and destroy, to destroy the child of God, he will end in defeat. It won't happen. You don't feel that way when you've fallen. You don't feel that way when you failed. But I'm just here to assure you this is how we are to deal with our struggles, with our falls, and our failures. Just just stop there for a moment. I I have to believe again that the reason that God laid this particular message on my heart was because there's somebody here that's fallen. No one else may know about it, but God knows about it, and you know about it, and the devil knows about it. And the fear is, you are sitting in darkness, and you think it's no way it will ever end. No way this is going to be righted. I am telling you now on the authority of God's word that Satan will be defeated. You are not locked up to defeat. In the third and final place this morning, in our struggle with our falls and our failures, we must always remember this truth. We overcome Satan, our sins and failures, through believing the gospel of God's grace. We overcome our falls and our failures. We get out of this place of sitting in darkness all the dread and the fear and the guilt and the shame by believing in the gospel of God's grace. You're going to find this theme coming up all throughout this week because I have, let's let's forget about me. The word of God has no other answer for all of these struggles than the gospel of grace. There is no other answer. I have got to believe in the gospel of God's grace, if I'm going to rise up from that place of darkness, if I'm going to get beyond the pain that I feel from the thorns in the flesh. Listen carefully again to that sound of confidence and assurance in Micah's 
exaltation over the enemy. I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. I have fallen. I am sitting in darkness, but he is still my God, and he will still, he will hear me. Because the devil would convince you that he will not hear you because you've fallen. And that's a lie. I will arise. The Lord shall be a light unto me. I have fallen down, but I will not stay down. I am sitting in darkness right now, but it won't be unending darkness. Now why? Why is Micah so confident here that it will be overcome? He will triumph over the enemy because he believed. He really believed in his heart. It wasn't just in his head, but he believed in his heart. He trusted the truth that God was a God of infinite grace, unending grace. He was a God of constant, unending, everlasting mercy. And you have to believe that, brothers and sisters, in the struggle with your sin. You have to believe that. Grace, grace is the goodness. It is the kindness. It is the gentleness of God shown to sinners who are totally undeserving of his favor, who are in fact deserving only to be cast away because of their sin and cast away forever. Had Micah not believed that God would be gracious to him, in spite of his fall, he would have never uttered the words of our text. Now, I know it's one thing to say you have to believe in the gospel of grace. It's, it's part of the, the mantra we can get so used to hearing and saying without digging into it. You know, folks, there's a lot of wonderful gems in the scripture. And you see a verse, oh, that's a good verse and that's comforted my heart. But I, I would really encourage you to take the time when there's some verse as you're reading and it just stands out, just take the time to dig into it. What is it actually saying? What does it mean when we say it's through believing in the gospel of grace that we are enabled in this struggle with our sin? How does it actually work in, in, in overcoming our guilt that plagues us and the fear that it brings along with it. Well, let me say in the first place that believing in God's grace means that you believe in your need of God's grace. That's first. You believe in your need of God's grace immediately after declaring he will rise again from his Darkness and from his fall, he says in verse 9, does he not? I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Micah, notice please, did not make any attempt to rationalize, to excuse his sin. He didn't try to ignore it try to forget about it and to shove it out of his mind and just get on with life. And he certainly didn't try to place the blame for it upon someone else. We know what that's like. Somebody else made us do it. It's because this person did this or said that, then I reacted. And so we want to shove off the blame on somebody else. Here's the picture of a child of God who is really owning up to his sin, owning up to his fall. Not, not, not reluctant to confess it. And saying whatever the consequences are, it's on me. We'll never rise up from our falls and failures until we agree with God about them. We will continue to sit in darkness until we come to God and we cry out, Lord, I need thee. Oh, I need thee. 
I need thy grace. That's first. Secondly, believing in God's grace means that you believe in the gospel of God's electing grace. If Satan is our enemy, it means that God is our friend, right? Right? If he's our enemy, God is our friend. And God is not our enemy. If we sincerely look upon sin, our falls, our failures as our enemy, it means that we belong to the family of God. We're children of God. And that's why we struggle. Those who are not the children of God don't have this struggle with sin. They don't have this struggle when they fall. They go from one fall. In fact, they don't even view it as a fall. It's just lifestyle. It's pleasure. It's not something they hate. And the only way any of the fact that we struggle with sin can be true is because he chose us in grace before the foundation of the world. That's the only way that can be true. That, that choice had nothing to do with anything that God saw good in you. Not because he foresaw that you would choose him. <laughs> At that point in time, it's a gospel of good works and not of grace. The fact is that when he chose you to be one of his people, he did knowing, knowing full well every fall into sin you would ever experience. He knew full well every backsliding, every bold-faced lie you would ever tell, every selfish act, every rank display of pride and arrogance, every lustful thought, every sin of awful unbelief, of calling God, in essence, a liar because you refused to believe his word was true, that his promise would hold good because that's what you do. He's lying to me. He didn't tell me the truth. That's awful. But he knew, he knew you would do it. He knew every foul word that would ever come out of your mouth. Everything you would ever do, but none of that prevented him from setting his love on you and making you one of his chosen people before time began. It is as if God said, I see it all. They're all in Romans 9, they're all in the same lump. Right there along with the most wicked of men. And I see everything they're going to do every time they're going to grieve the Holy Spirit. Every time they're going to bring shame upon the name of Christ and hurt their testimony. But it's not going to stop me from setting my love upon them. You ever thought about that? When you have fallen, I'm still elect. I'm still chosen. He will not cast me away. He will not throw me off. He cannot do that. He can't unelect me. He can't unchoose me. He knew full well. Full well. Believing in God's grace also means that you believe. In the gospel of God's regenerating grace. By an act, and it's not a work. Don't call the new birth a work. It's not a work, it's an act. By an act of the Holy Spirit, God planned, he planted this life, his life in you. 
He united you with Christ. You were brought, resurrected from death unto life. You were dead in sin. It wasn't just a sickness. Fanny Crosby had that wrong, a bit of wrong theology. Something is there crushed beneath. And just it takes a little spark, a little fan. That's not true. There was no spark. There was nothing there but death. But the Holy Ghost came one day. I know not where it was for you, but it happened. The Holy Ghost said, live! And you were brought to life. You were dead in sin, and you were born again by the Spirit of God. And that life, can you imagine, it almost seems ludicrous, but sometimes it takes ludicrous illustrations to help us get it. Can you be unborn? (laughs) How can it happen? You're born, that's it. You're here. You can't undo that. Can you be unborn spiritually? It's impossible. You've been born anew, brought into spiritual life. That can't be reversed any more than you can be unborn. Isn't that wonderful truth to lay hold of when you find yourself sitting in darkness and you think God has given up on you and you've fallen too many times You have failed too many times. You've committed that sin too many times. You're still alive. You still have the Holy Ghost within you. An ever-present guest dwelling. Your falls, your failures, your follies will never bring an end to this life. That is why it's called everlasting life. Why the word of God says you will never perish. You can't be unborn. Again, believing in God's grace means that you believe in the gospel of justifying grace. Doctrine is good, you know. Gospel truths. This is... This is This is about how you live the Christian life. And part of the Christian life is that we sin and we fall and we fail. But we have to, in this struggle we're going to have, and a struggle we're going to have till the day we're brought to glory, we need to bring the gospel truths and this gospel of justifying grace to bear upon if we're going to rise up after falling. Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. By another irreversible act of God, an unrighteous sinner is declared to be perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, perfectly just in the eyes of divine justice. This is how God sees his people. It's hard to... It's hard to really take it in, especially when you're sitting in a place of darkness because you have fallen. And yet, what the gospel says, even though we are sitting in a place of darkness, a place of gloom and defeat and dread and despair, nothing has changed how God views us. I was living an awful life for three years. But God never stopped viewing me as righteous in his son. That just astounds me. He should have cast, he should have cast me off. But he couldn't. Because all he could see, all he could see was the perfect righteousness of Christ hiding, hiding all of my sin so his wrath could not find it. That's the gospel. That's the gospel of grace. Don't be afraid to embrace it. It's your hope. It's the foundation of your assurance which Sin, of course, robs us of. How, how, how did that come about? How did we get there? Into that state. 
Can I tell you the old, old story? Just for a moment. There was only one way that we could ever enter heaven. We had to be as perfect as God himself. Perfect, sinless, undefiled in any way. The problem is we could never do that. We were born in sin. And we, because of that depraved nature, we chose sin, inclined toward it. We didn't want God, we would never choose God. We were dead in sin. But because of the great love wherewith he loved us, God and the Father entered into an agreement, a covenant. I will give these people to you, my son. I love them. I want them here in glory with me. But you must go, take upon yourself human flesh, Live that perfect life that they would never be able to live because my law must be satisfied. And you must die. You must win these people. And Christ said, I'll go because they're my people. What happened? What happened? What was the transaction at Calvary? All, all, all of our iniquity was transferred to Jesus Christ, imputed to him, charged to his account. And all of his righteousness, all of that obedience that he performed in our stead was transferred over to us, counter-imputation. And on that basis, that day when the Holy Spirit came and gave us life, and for the first time, by his grace, we were able to exercise faith and turn from sin and conversion and repentance and go to Christ, he justified us, declared us righteous. Jesus truly paid it all, as the verse goes, payment, I heard it for the first time in Newtown Square, and this man right here thrilled my heart. Yeah, you can understand when you've gone 10 years doubting your salvation what this meant. Payment, God cannot twice demand, once at my bleeding surety's hand, and then again at mine. I don't have anything to pay, it's been paid. There's an answer to my sin. And that is why, as Bonner put it, upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I staked my whole eternity, not on the tears which I have shed, not on the sorrows I have known, Another's tears, another's griefs, on them I rest, on them alone. Believing in God's grace, furthermore, means that you believe in the gospel of God's sanctifying grace. Don't fall into the trap that so many believers have. To think that you are sanctified by works because you are not. You are sanctified by the grace of the gospel. He which hath begun a good work in you shall perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Fact. He will not stop. You will fall and he will pick you up. You will sin and he will cleanse you. You will fail, he will give you success. He that hath begun a good work will carry it on until the end. So why should I think for one moment I'm not going to grow in grace? I know how you feel. I know how you feel after you fall in sin. 
it's over. I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not going to be of any use. I'm not going to be any help. I'm not going to grow any at all, but that's not grace. God says you are going to grow. And as the old truth has been often repeated, no, I am not what I should be, and I'm not what I want to be, but I'm not what I'm going to be at all. But right now, God is changing. You're, you're not the same man. You're not the same woman. You're not the same husband. You're not the same wife that you used to be. I'm not the same preacher I used to be. And it's not because of me. It's because of grace. It's grace. I thank the Lord I've seen a little more of grace than ever I've seen in my life in recent years. How gently the Lord has come and dealt with the souls of his people. You felt like you would be crushed. But what you cling to, this God is going to keep on working. And he's not going to break me when I am a bruised reed and smoking flax. He will not quench me. He must keep on working in me. He must keep on working in you. Believing in God's grace means that you believe in his pardoning grace. Look now, please, with me at verse 18. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgressions of the remnant of his people? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. We read and sang this morning Psalm 23. He restoreth my soul. That word means literally he brings back my soul. In the context of the psalm, Psalm 23, the shepherd psalm, David is describing sheep. And he's describing sheep that go astray. And guess what the shepherd does? I'm going after them. I'm going to bring them back. He bringeth back my soul. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Tell me, tell me, tell me, how many times have you gone astray? And how many times has Christ come and brought you back? You neglected the place of prayer for who knows how many days or weeks or maybe months. But he brought you back. You wandered away for years. But because, because, because he pardoned sin, he brought you back. Now I, I, can, I can deal with this struggle with sin now knowing that he will pardon and pardon over and over again. Believing in God's grace means that you believe in the gospel of God's covenant grace. Last thought, covenant Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob, he says in verse 20, and the, the mercy to Abraham which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. That's covenant. That's covenant grace. God is the one who's bound himself to all this. He has sworn, as it were, lifted his own hands, sworn by his own name, by his own character, I will pardon the sins of my people. I will bring them to glory. Glory. They'll be saved at last. No fall, no failure, no backsliding, no sin. No sin we will ever commit. Ever. Will separate us from this covenant love that God has given to us in Christ Jesus. And brothers and sisters, this is the only way you can deal with your falls and failures. Is that where you are this morning? 
you follow? I don't know the details. I don't need to know the details. How are you going to deal with the guilt? How are you going to deal with the hopelessness, the shame, the dread? Oh, there's only one way. It's the gospel of grace. Well, I've been addressing Christians this morning. But in closing, uh, uh, just a little word to those who are not Christian. You don't know anything about this struggle. You're clueless. You have no fight with sin. You may not like some of the consequences that your sin has gotten you into, but it's not because you hate the sin itself. You just go on and you love your sin. You have no battle with it. You know what that means? That means you're an enemy of God. That means you're fighting against him and your sins are weapons of war against your maker. You have no battle at all. That can all change here and now. Wherever you are in the room, it can change right now because Jesus Christ is still the one and the only one who can pardon sin who can bring you from death unto life. I tell you, I tell you on the authority of God's word, you do not want to be at the end of the road where your sin will take you. You do not want to be there. You can't begin to imagine the terrors of hell. You can't begin to imagine how bad it will be. But that does not have to be where you end up. Don't you want to engage in a real battle with sin? And fight for once in your life on the side of Jesus Christ and not against him. And come today. Come. He'll be glad to receive you. God, write this word on our hearts for his name's sake. Could we bow our heads in prayer? Let's seek the Lord. Eternal God and Father, we leave thy truth in the hands of the Spirit of God. We pray that he himself will continue to preach on to the hearts of thy struggling people. Let these truths roll over our hearts time and time again. We know what the devil's about, but we also know what thou art about. And we thank thee that thou wilt always win in love and grace. In Christ's name we pray, amen.